Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week we're bringing you a conversation that's a little different than what you normally hear on this show. There are two ways to think about democracy. One that focuses on politics and institutions, what we might think of as liberal democracy, and another that's democracy is a way of organizing society around the collective good. And that's what Jeremy Engels and I discuss in this episode. Jeremy is a professor of communication arts and sciences at Penn State and author of The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson, Whitman, and the Bhagavad Gita. We focus most of this conversation on Emerson and Whitman and how their thinking can perhaps address some of the challenges that American democracy faces today. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I think you will too. One more thing before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy called The Vital Center. The show is a production of the Niskanen Center and examines today's politics in the context of our nation's history and offers concrete policies that can reverse our political dysfunction. Check out The Vital Center wherever you get your podcasts. And now here's my interview with Jeremy Engels. Jeremy Engels, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's so nice to be here with you today. So I'm excited to talk with you about your book, The Ethics of Oneness. And I think our listeners will find that this is a very different approach and a different conversation than the ones we typically have on the show. And you actually explicitly say in the book that democracy for the people that you focus on, like Walt Whitman and Ralph Waldo Emerson, it's not about voting or parties or stump speeches or candidates. And those are a lot of the things we tend to talk about on this show. So as a way into this, can you kind of orient us or, or ground us in this other vision of what democracy is and what role it plays in our lives? Sure thing. Yeah, I um, no, I've always been influenced by um, the work of the philosopher John Dewey. And um, John Dewey's really a titan of 20th century um, American philosophy and also democratic theory. And Dewey, in a lot of ways, was embodying um, many of the insights of this tradition that I look at in my book. He's, he's a little bit later um, than the, the figures that I look at. But one of the things that Dewey said that I've always taken really seriously and has resonated with me in my own life is that democracy is a way of life. And I think that in our culture today, we've been encouraged and conditioned to focus on democracy as this thing that happens like every four years or maybe every two years in a presidential election or a congressional election or maybe even a local election. But there's another way of thinking about democracy that's very deeply rooted in American history that sees democracy as something that starts on the grassroots in our relationships with other people. And so democracy is less about, or maybe not necessarily less about, but the, the ultimate fruit of these elections isn't really the focus so much of someone like Walt Whitman, the great democratic poet. He's more interested in how, how do we talk to other people? How do we engage with other people? How do we see other people? Do we welcome other people with different opinions and different voices and different perspectives into the conversation, or do we push them away? Um, how do we listen? How do we see other people? And so for me, when I think about democracy, I think less about elections, though they're important, um, obviously, 
right? Um, but I think about this grassroots everyday culture that we cultivate in how we interact with other people, which maybe isn't surprising as a communication scholar, I guess. Right, right. And there's another way that rhetoric plays into all this too, I think. You also talk in the book about pragmatists and dissenters. Um, can you talk a little bit more about those two frameworks and how they fit into this broader concept of democracy you were just describing? Yeah, I think that so Whitman and one of the things I, I really enjoy about Whitman is he was, you know, in a lot of ways, a great propagandist of democracy. I mean, he believed deeply in democracy. And after the Civil War, he wrote um, some really uh, very astute philosophical treatises on democracy. And he says this really weird thing about how democracy is about helping people to develop their soul sight, which is, I'm sure, a phrase you have never heard on this podcast before. <laughs> uh, and uh you know, he's talking about how through our interactions with other people, if we stop to listen, um, to really see other people in their diversity, in their life experiences, in their pain and their suffering and their joy and their pleasure, we start to notice how deeply interconnected we are as human beings. And I think that one of the great troubles in our culture is this idea of individualism, of how we are, you know, somehow not dividable, which is what the word individual means, you know, coming from the Latin. And it becomes difficult for us to see this interconnectedness, um, how my decisions and the things that I do impact others and radiate outward beyond anything that I could ever hope to control as an individual. And so there's a sense of democracy as waking us up to our interconnectedness, but also waking us up to the fact that as individual people, there's actually very little we can do to control our world. But instead, we do that by working together. We do that in community. We do that in public. We do that together. And so in the book, I talk about how you know, from a rhetorical perspective, um, and I think from a democratic theory perspective too, um, the pragmatist school of philosophy is a really important way of looking at democracy. And that school has roots in American culture going back to the Civil War. And one of the things that the pragmatists were really interested in was looking back at the Civil War and saying, okay, that should not happen in a democracy, right? We should not be killing each other. That's like a baseline um, thing that shouldn't happen in a democracy, um, which is interesting in and of itself today, given, you know, how partisan warfare has become, you know, literal warfare in, in many ways. Um, the pragmatists taught that we shouldn't take our ideas so seriously, that we should approach all of our ideas, our ideas with a degree of humility, um, that we need to test our ideas out in public, um, in conversation with others to see what works and what doesn't. And partisan warfare and literal warfare comes when I hold so deeply to my truths and you hold so deeply to your truths and they're incompatible truths and we see no way that we can reconcile them. Um, 
There's another school of democracy that is very present in American culture. Um, I wrote about this school in my second book, which is called The Politics of Resentment. And rather than seeing democracy as a way of resolving conflicts, potentially, which is what pragmatists are interested in doing, I, I call this school democracy as dissent because I couldn't really think of a better phrasing. And I'm sure, you know, maybe you know, collectively we could come up with something better. But there's a sense in which democracy really is actually a kind of war, um, a war in which those who do not have enough um, band together in order to challenge and agitate and fight for what they need. Um, I think that that school of democracy has had tremendous benefits, but also tremendous problems, obviously, um, in, you know, in American culture and American history. The thing that um, the philosophers I look at in this book, so Emerson and Whitman in particular, say is that we need a shared foundation. We need a shared philosophical worldview. I guess, if democracy is going to work. And that worldview is oneness. It's that we are fundamentally interconnected, that life is a shared journey. We're on a shared procession. Um, and if we don't have that shared worldview, that shared connectedness, that shared realization that we're all in this together, then pragmatism won't work. Um, and democracy as dissent will lead to actual war. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, seeing everything from public opinion polls to commentary about how polarized we are, how divided we are. And it seems like it's getting worse all the time. And I guess I just wonder two things. One, how much of that is a self-fulfilling prophecy? If we just keep telling ourselves we're divided, we're going to be divided. And also whether there is a failure of imagination today to think about a different path forward that perhaps didn't exist at the time that Whitman and Emerson were writing. Yeah, I think that that's so smart. And I think that, um, you know, in, in, in yoga, we often talk about, uh, you know, one of my mantras is we are what we practice. Um, whatever it is that we put into practice during the day is what we become. I mean, our habits become who we are. Um, and one thing I love about the philosophers that called themselves transcendentalists, so Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and Margaret Fuller and others, is that they dared to try to imagine different ways of existing. Um, they they didn't have they they didn't suffer from a failure of imagination for certain. And um, I think that that refrain of "we're so polarized, we can't communicate," there's you know, democracy is dying. I mean, the more that we say those kinds of things and the more we put our belief and our actions behind them, the more true they become, I think. And um, and so I think this is a moment of possibility in a lot of ways, like a moment of possibility for radical new imaginations of what democracy might look like. Um, and what that's going to look like... Um, 
you know, I don't know. Um, I, I joke in the book that what we really need is, you know, we had our declaration of independence. Um, what we really need is a declaration of interdependence. Um, and I couldn't write that obviously by myself. I mean, that would be counterproductive to have one person write that. Um, but what would it, what would it mean to actually welcome a number of voices of people who are profoundly affected by the decisions we make into a conversation to think about what democracy would look like. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing today, actually, with um, so many of the movements for um, social and racial justice. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot about the work that Danielle Allen is doing on our common purpose that, you know, just as you suggested, bringing together people from a variety of different perspectives to reimagine what our common democratic ideals are and then how to put those into practice from a policy perspective. And I think that the traditions that I'm looking at would say that that's a completely wrongheaded way of framing the question altogether, that democracy is a project. Um, it's never finished. Um and it hits roadblocks and bumps. And it also hits deliberate resistance, like we're seeing in the, you know, various um, GOP bills and different state houses to limit, um, you know, the ability of citizens to vote and to make voting more difficult. Um, and so, I don't know, I think when we turn democracy into like a thing, um, then it's something it's like we can possess or we can have or we can hold. I don't see democracy in that way at all. Actually, I see democracy as always being this fragile project of welcoming more and more voices of people into the conversation, because I think that people should be empowered to have a voice in decisions that affect them. Right. Well, you're also kind of hitting on something that we've talked about on this show before, which is the the founding fathers and their fear of democracy. It seems like they feared a lot of the things you were just describing. And so they they tried to make it something they tried to make democracy something that you can more easily control. Yeah, I wrote an article about that. Um, I mean, actually, my dissertation was about uh, in my first book um, called Enemyship was about the rhetoric of democracy in the founding period. And I was really interested in one particular question. And it's interesting when you think about the founding of the United States, where you have something like the Declaration of Independence um, in 1776, which basically is this rallying cry for common people to fight against the British aristocracy. Um, the war gets fought, it gets won, Treaty of Paris in 1783. And then all of a sudden you have a new group of political elites who are telling the same people that they told just a few years before to fight, you know, for fight for democracy, really. I mean, when you look at various state constitutions and whatnot, now they're telling them that they should submit to elite rule and elite authority. How how, how do they manage that rhetorically? Um you know, I argued in my first book that they do that through enemyship. Um, and enemyship being the uniting of a people in opposition to a common enemy. And so I look at in that first book, um, you know, this series of um, common enemies that leaders of the United States say that American people share. And it almost is though the American people itself comes to only exist in opposition to a national enemy. Um, 
that's a really problematic politics for so many reasons. Um, I wrote that book, you know, thinking about the post 9-11 moment, um, because, again, we were seeing those dynamics very much. Um, but I wrote an article a few years ago looking at um, the instances in The Federalist where um, Hamilton and Madison actually talk about democracy and like looking at the rhetoric they use. And it's fascinating because they do exactly what you said, like they turn democracy into a thing, um, but they use a body metaphor to conceptualize democracy. And they talk about democracy as like a cancer, as a contagion, as an emotion. Um, and it seems like they feared, they feared the very thing that I think a lot of political elites fear about democracy today in that when you get a group of people together and you get them talking and listening, it's unpredictable what's going to happen. And that often is the beauty of democracy, right? Is that um, it results in these unpredictable moments of invention and imagination. Um, but it's also uncontrollable and frightening, especially if it's directed against certain power structures. Um, and in the history of the United States, um, you know, as Isabella Wilkerson, you know, demonstrates in her wonderful book, Cast, um, those histories have always been overlaid with race um, in the United States. And so, you know, challenges to whiteness as property, challenges to individualism, and what supposedly were promised as individuals, um, you know, they create this moment of, of crisis in, in culture. And um, I think what we're seeing now is new enemieships, new politics of resentment that are aimed at kind of trying to capture that popular agitation and resentment and turn it towards political ends. But at the same time, there are these genuine democratic moments of invention happening right now that are really encouraging. Yeah, I mean, so some of the things that I hear a lot in democracy reform circles are things like finding common ground, turning down the heat in politics. And there's all these groups that are, you know, purple this and purple that. And the kind of the idea being that we have to somehow bring red and blue together to heal some of these political divisions. And, you know, I'm wondering what you make of these efforts and how they may or may not fit into this idea of oneness that you describe. You know, I think that one of the things that, um, you know, Whitman is really famous for these long lists in his poems. And, uh, it's something that has troubled literary critics for a long time. Like a lot of Whitman scholars hate these long lists where he just basically he's walking around Brooklyn and he's just naming every person he encounters. Um, and I find those lists to be really beautiful moments, actually. I mean, beautiful descriptions of what it maybe was like for him to, to live in that moment. Um, but they're incredibly inclusive and in democratic lists. Like they're not hierarchical lists, you know, they're, they're collections. Um, and I don't know, I think that this idea of making things purple to me, I find really troubling because I think that's a watering down of almost everything. Actually. Um, I don't think that we need a watering down of people and their perspectives. I think that we need to create better containers in which those perspectives can actually 
you know, come, come together. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I alternate between moments of, you know, optimism and moments of despair when it comes to thinking about democracy. I mean, and I feel like we're taught as scholars to believe and to teach our students that if you welcome everyone into the conversation and you conduct that conversation with a kind of like civility, um, you know, good things will happen. Um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I mean, now, because we've seen, especially with like, you know, Ursula's work, right? The problems with civility, I mean, civility in and of itself can kind of norm conversation in really problematic ways. Um, but I feel like one of the things that we're collectively experiencing right now, I mean, we've just been through a pandemic, right? Um, we've been through, um, well, I mean, we're not, we haven't been through, it's still happening. Um, you know, things look a little bit better in the United States, but I think of my friends in, you know, India or South America where it doesn't look better. Um, but I think that the pandemic, um, in a really interesting way has impressed upon people how interconnected we are, right? I mean, interconnected in terms of breath, um, in terms of breathing on each other, in terms of contagion and vulnerability. Um, I think that for some people that's caused them to recoil and to turn away from this shared life that we live, um, you know, to really double down on, um, I made this, I can do it by myself, individualism, rugged individualism. John Dewey calls it ragged individualism. Um, but I wonder if, uh, I don't know, I wonder if there are ways and opportunities to help people to begin to wake up to this shared life that we lead um, that don't involve having to like govern from the center, I guess. And I don't know the answer to that. So something we haven't talked about yet, but you spent a lot of time on in the book, is the connection between this idea of democracy that we've been discussing with Whitman and Emerson and the connection to the Bhagavad Gita and Indian thought. I know you spent a lot of time on it in the book, and it feels kind of cheap to ask you for a Cliff Notes version of it. But um, if you could help connect those dots um, between Emerson, Whitman, Thoreau, and this bigger Indian tradition, I think that would be very helpful. Sure. Um, so during the 1800s, um, many of, well, not many, but some of the important philosophical and religious texts of Indian culture and Indian history of Hinduism and Buddhism began to be translated into um, the European languages. And, uh, you know, through textual dissemination, they came to be available in, you know, in the United States. And um, it's a moment in which, um, there's a really strong reaction in Europe against what's seen to be this kind of cold, calculating rationalism um, of the Enlightenment, right? This 
scientific view of the universe that all there is is just molecules and bodies and intuition is garbage and we need to just be mathematicians and um and so you know that form of reaction in europe takes the form of romanticism and in the united states it takes the form of transcendentalism and um that collective movement of scholars was really deeply interested in Indian, um, Indian thought and Indian philosophy. And um, for various really complicated reasons, um, the Bhagavad Gita um, comes to be a text that is recognized to be an important philosophical um, and spiritual text, which, which it was. Um, there are others. Um, and the reasons that the Gita kind of gets elevated are interesting historically. Um, but it's a book that um, Emerson and Thoreau found to be really, really fascinating. Um, and it's a book that deals with questions of um, individual duty, um, you know, what are, what are our duties in really difficult situations and how do we determine how it is we should act? Um, a lot of the stories, um, that are told about the American and European interaction with Indian thought, um, and there've been so many great books written about this, but the general vibe tends to be that, um, you know, Emerson and Thoreau and, and Whitman and others, you know, took this philosophy and just kind of incorporated it wholesale into what they believed. Um, and digging into the historical texts and the essays and the letters, um, I found that the story of transmission is much more complicated than that, um, that there are moments in which, you know, Emerson and Whitman and others really deeply resisted ideas of um, that were central to the Bhagavad Gita. But the idea that came to resonate most strongly in different ways um, and still, I think, actually resonates most strongly with Americans is this idea of oneness in the Gita. Um, and that's what Krishna in the dialogue teaches Arjuna is that all beings are interconnected because all beings are God. Um, the thing that he teaches in the Gita that Thoreau in particular points out is so deeply ethically problematic. You know, Krishna teaches Arjuna that because all beings are God, nothing ever really lives and nothing ever really dies. And so if you kill people during war by doing your duty, you're not actually killing anyone. Um, Thoreau and then others reflecting back on the Civil War and then others reflecting back on World War One and World War Two point out just how problematic that idea is. Um, and so when thinking about an ethics of oneness in the book, which is what I what I try to do, I mean, I try to say if we're going to be committed to oneness, to interconnectedness, to inner being. What does that actually mean for how we live our lives? What does that mean for our politics, for our democracy, for our relationships, for our government? Um, if we're going to be committed to oneness, we also have to be committed to diversity and difference. And we also have to be committed to the idea that bodies are real and that individual bodies and individual lives matter. They're not just illusions. Um, so that's a real Cliff Notes version of that. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to study the Gita in 
in India. You know, the story I tell at the very beginning of the book, um, which was just such a, such a surprise and a wonderful moment. I, I went into um, a bookseller, a bookseller in Chennai, um, where I was studying the very first time I went to India. And um, I asked the bookseller for her um, favorite book or for her favorite book on yoga. Um, and uh, she kind of looked me over and she went in the back and she came back out and she presented me with a copy of Emerson's essays um, from the 1860s. And I think it was a copy that a, a missionary probably had brought over to India at the time. And um, and so I don't know. It, it's interesting, this this cross-cultural dialogue um, that's been going on for 200 years or so is one that I find to be fascinating and also enriching because I think that it encourages us to ask questions about democracy that we might not otherwise ask. So as we start to bring things to a close here, Jeremy, and think about a path forward here, um, you know, one of the arguments that, that I often hear made is that we're at this point where the house is on fire with respect to democracy and some of the things that we've been talking about are akin to perhaps standing around and analyzing how hot the flames are as opposed to trying to put the fire out, right? And there's this tendency to want to separate these two things. Maybe it comes back to democracy as a thing versus democracy as a, as a way of life. But how do you think about the urgency of some of these democratic problems versus some of the bigger picture or more fundamental ideas about what role democracy should play in our lives? Yeah, I think that that's, um, I think that's, that's such an interesting question. And, um, you know, when a, when a house is on fire, obviously the idea is, you know, you, you need to put the fire out, right? I mean, that's the, the power of that metaphor. You don't stand around talking about whose house is it and how did it get on fire and how hot is the fire and whatnot. Um, but I think that those questions are important questions, actually, of, all right, if, the if our house of democracy is on fire, if the house is divided, whose house is it and who is welcome in the house and who controls the house and how did it get on fire um, and what is the best way to put that fire out? And then how is how should we prevent fires like that from happening in the future? Um, I'm not convinced that the house being on fire isn't actually the default state of American politics. Um, you know, I, mean, I think we have a kind of intense flaring up maybe of that fire today. Right. I mean, um, but the dynamics that we're seeing today are not new with President Trump, right? I mean, that's the thing that scholars have been showing, that these dynamics are rooted deeply in American culture, um, in so many ways going back to the very founding of our country. Um, and so I think that Putting out the fire is important, granted, right? Um, let me let me get a hose. Um, like, I, I would love to, to, to help. But if we don't ask why the house is on fire and whose house it is and who's allowed in and who is putting out the fire in what way, it's just going to happen again. Um, and so I think a lot of these imaginative questions about, um, you know, questions of imagination of what is to come, but also questions of historical perspective, of how did we get to this place? And is this new? Um, I think are really important. 
um, moving forward. Well, we will leave it there for today. Jeremy Engels, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. This was just an absolute pleasure. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.